Chapter 8 The Slip Formby, Merseyside, Friday, 25th of April 2014 It was close to midnight and the house was quiet. Alex and the girls were asleep. I was 40 hours away from the biggest game of my career and it felt like my head and my back had both gone. Stretched out on a couch, the lights dimmed and my phone glowing in the murky light, I took another painkiller and checked the time again. It was late. One of the hazards of being a professional footballer is that, far from feeling like supreme athletes, we often seem a little broken. Our backs ache, our knees hurt, our ankles throb, we break bones, tear muscles, snap ligaments, strain tendons, and, well, in my case at least, suffer a lacerated penis. There have been few games, especially since I've been in my thirties, where I've started without having some kind of twinge or concern in the build-up. We get used to playing through pain, but this was far worse. If we had been facing Oldham Athletic in an FA Cup tie, rather than Chelsea in a title decider, the decision would have been made. I would have been out of the game. For the previous three days I'd been suffering from a sore and inflamed back, and then, out of nowhere, the hurt became so acute it felt as if I could not bend over or even move. Hours later, I was still pinned to the spot, in agony. I could not even haul myself up and hobble towards bed. I'd had to take care of me back for years. To help manage the stiffness, I travelled down regularly to Milton Keynes to see a specialist who used therapeutic injections. I'd been so caught up in the title race, and I'd been playing really well, that I'd almost shunted the back issue out of my head for months. But the body is unforgiving. The lower spine pulsed with pain. I had struggled in training on Wednesday and Thursday, but that was nothing compared to how I felt earlier that day during our Friday session, our final piece of intensive work before Chelsea. The medical team had worked on me for hours in the afternoon. Zaf Iqbal, Liverpool's team doctor, had dosed me up with the maximum permissible pain relief and advised me to rest as much as I could at home. Nothing worked. Ibuprofen was hopeless. Voltarol wasn't strong enough and even diazepam which is meant to ease muscle spasms as well as being a tranquilizer, had little impact. The pain deepened. My head was full of Chelsea, too. It seemed cruel that, having seen off Man City, we had to play Chelsea in our next game at Anfield. I'd had so many bruising encounters with Chelsea over the years. There had been a long running where it seemed as if almost every year we were involved in an epic Champions League tie with them, and there had been so many other league titles and cup matches. We had won a few and lost a few. I had come so close to leaving Liverpool for Chelsea in 2005. The reason I stayed in the end was that Liverpool meant so much to me both as a club and as a city. Chelsea and London didn't mean anything. During those distressing days, when I felt so torn about whether or not I should stay or go, I never once thought to myself, I want to play for Chelsea instead of Liverpool. My head was almost turned because I was thinking, I'd love to play for Jose Mourinho. I was certain that, under Jose, I would win all the trophies I craved. As a manager, Mourinho has everything. He's a great tactician and motivator. He coaches well. He buys well. He fights hard for the squad. He helps his players improve. And Chelsea's impossibly rich owner has always backed them with money and power. Jose Mourinho, rather than Chelsea, turned my head. I think he could have gotten more out of me as a player. I know he would have brought me success. But if I had gone to Stamford Bridge in 2005, who knows what direction my career would have taken. Mourinho left for Inter and Real Madrid, but we all knew he'd be back in West London one day. Between July 2005 and May 2015, 
Chelsea won the Champions League, two Premier League titles, four FA Cups, the Europa League and two League Cups. That's ten big trophies. In that same period at Liverpool, I had won an FA Cup and a League Cup. Chelsea 10, Liverpool 2. That's why the chase for the league title in 2014 ate me up so much. I wanted that huge championship for Liverpool and, yes, also as a seal of vindication on my certainty, even today, that I made the right decision. The decision boiled down to a simple choice. Do I want to win trophies with Chelsea, or do I stay loyal to Liverpool? It would have been great to have won so much, and a good experience, particularly under Mourinho, but it would have cost me the love and respect of the Liverpool fans. What mattered more to me? Medals and titles, or love and respect? Chelsea fans are not my people. We've all worked that out over the years. I belong to Liverpool, and that's why I decided it would mean so much more if I could win two, three, or even four trophies with them. Those victories would last me a lifetime. Mourinho understood my reasons, but each time he came in for me, he was very persuasive. I liked the way he spoke to me and I could see how most of his players were ready to die for him. I remember them winning the Champions League with Inter Milan and the devastation of his players when he left. You could see it in the faces. I understood how they felt because they had shared such a big moment in their careers together. I never had that with Rafa Benitez. I would have had it with Jose Mourinho. It was clear that tactically he could set up his team to win any football match. He could spoil, he could fight, he could do whatever he needed because he was a pure winner. But more than that, he created a special bond with each squad he managed. You heard it in the way his players spoke about him. You saw it in the way they played for him. For me, the ideal situation would obviously have been if Mourinho would have managed Liverpool. He was linked with a move to Anfield a couple of times, but it never materialised. I know I'm biased, but I think it would have been a perfect match. The Liverpool fans would have loved him, and he would have known exactly how to turn that love into adoration. He would have loved managing at Anfield too. He always told me about his deep respect for our supporters. Jose would have had a fantastic time bringing huge success to Liverpool. Instead, he now stood in the path of Liverpool and me in our quest for the elusive league title. The most difficult manager to beat in the Premier League and probably Europe will be in the opposite corner. I knew Mourinho well enough to expect our biggest test of the season. Chelsea's attention might have been switched to the Champions League. They were between semi-final legs against Atletico Madrid but they could still win the league and I was absolutely certain Mourinho would be plotting and scheming to overtake us. He was too proud a man not to want Chelsea to shoot us down at Anfield. He might have liked and respected Brendan Rodgers, one of his former protégés from their time at Chelsea together, but the master would not enjoy seeing an apprentice effectively win the league title against him. It made me nervous, thinking about Mourinho and everything he would have in store for us. Only the pain in my back could distract me from Mourinho and Chelsea. Later that night, it was so bad, I felt like climbing the walls of a house which was heavy and silent with sleep. I picked up my phone. It was after midnight. I knew Chris Morgan would understand if a text from me suddenly beeped on his phone. Hi, mate. Sorry. I know it's late. You awake? Chris pinged me straight back. Yeah. How you feeling? How's the back? I was always going to be straight with Chris. Ed's gone. Worst it's felt. Just taking another ibuprofen and Voltadol. Chris kept our text so I can now see that at the end of each dark message I added a very sad face. I was resorting to emoticons at the dead of the night. Chris had grown used to me sad faces and so he tried to boost me with his text reply. 
When it can go quickly from feeling good to bad, it can also go quickly from feeling bad to good. Don't worry, we'll sort it out tomorrow. Get in a comfy position, relax. Don't keep testing it, try and get some sleep. I didn't feel any better. I sent another text. I've had three hours treatment today, been in the pool, I've rested it, I've had anti-inflams, ibuprofen, diazepam, and it's the worst it's felt. I'm not confident at all. Night, mate. It was a quarter past midnight and my face was as sad as me text. Seven hours later, at exactly 7.15am, on the day before the game, Chris texts me again. How are you? Not good. We arranged to meet at Melwood at 9am. Chris found me 15 minutes early. I was eating me breakfast. It was obvious I was in a bad way. I was having to slide me whole body along the long seat before gingerly getting up. He didn't say this to me then, but he told me later he'd thought, Oh no, we're in trouble here. In the pool it felt a little bit better. The medical team then did a lot of work on me back, and Zaf Iqbal gave me a general anti-inflammatory injection of Voltarol. They strapped me up so that my back would be supported. Zaf knew that I was determined to play against Chelsea, and let me go out for a very light training session. Zaf had given Brendan the worrying update. He told him he had a real concern. But we needed to see how I coped with training. Out on that Melwood pitch, I didn't feel right. My back felt better than I thought it would, I said to Chris afterwards, but I couldn't play with it. We went back to the pool. Zaf and Chris were in a huddle while I was in the water. I moved towards them. I was clinging to the side of the pool. Zaf, Chris, I said, can you get me through this game? Yeah, Chris said. Zaf was also positive. We'll find the best way. The doc took Chris out for a chat. I stretched in the water, feeling the pain, and waited for their decision. I was still in agony. They came back into the pool area together. OK, Stevie, said Zaf. We can jab the joint. I nodded. I was ready for an injection that would take away the pain and allow me to play. Zaf knelt down at the side of the pool. He explained that it would be a facet injection of cortisone. A facet jab anesthetizes the joints, reduces inflammation, and blocks the pain. The cortisone would free me up and allow me to play. Chris had pushed for it because he knew I would do anything medically permissible to get on that pitch. They'd done something similar with Daniel Agge, and it worked. It was not a routine decision, but 30 hours before the Chelsea game, it was that or nothing. Let's go for it, I said. I wanted the intervention, and I didn't care about the possible consequences. I had to play against Chelsea. Zaff arranged for a back specialist in St. Helens to administer the injection. We walked into the consultancy room a few minutes before 1pm. I was anxious to get it done. The injection brought me immediate relief from the pain, as the medical team had predicted, and I could have skipped all the way back to the car. I had sudden confidence that I'd be all right. On Saturday night, the Liverpool squad stayed, as usual, at the Hope Street Hotel. My back felt fine, and my head was better too. I still had Chelsea in mind, though, and after some physio and checks which gave me the all-clear to play, I mulled over a number of surreal coincidences. It was weird enough that our league destiny might turn on a match against a manager and club that had impacted so much on the last nine years of my life. There was other jar and painful connections between me and Chelsea, between us and them. The game would feel like a cup final, and the last time I played Chelsea in a cup final it had ended in disaster. In late February 2005, in the League Cup final held at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff, we took a beautifully ridiculous early lead when John Arnorisa volleyed in a goal after just 45 seconds. 
I was captain in Liverpool for the first time in a cup final, and for much of that afternoon it seemed as if I was on course to lift the trophy. It would have been a relief because, until then, it had been a difficult season. Liverpool were misfiring in the league, and I was not willing to sign a new contract until the season ended, and we would know if we had made it into the top four again. There was speculation that Chelsea was preparing a huge bid for me. We were still winning 1-0 when catastrophe struck in the 79th minute. I jumped to clear Paolo Ferreira's free kick and attempted to head it away for a corner. Instead, I deflected it into my own net. ITV's commentary summed up the views of many Liverpool and Chelsea fans in the depths of my personal devastation. Stevie Gerrard, many believe, has just scored his first of many goals for Chelsea, and he scored it as a Liverpool player in a cup final. I was crushed by my own goal. The game went into extra time, and Chelsea won 3-2. Mourinho, who had been sent off after he made the point of shushing the Liverpool fans, holding a finger up to his lips while he stalked the touchline, consoled our players at the final whistle. We were slumped on the ground. He was very classy and showing us respect. But of course it was blown up and attention focused almost solely on photographs of him comforting me. It was seen as the next stage in Chelsea's wooing of Gerard. All I cared about then was that we had lost, and it felt like it was all my fault. I felt I had let everyone down. It got worse. After my dad had called me, supportive as always, saying, Keep your chin up. Forget about it. A more worrying message arrived while we were being driven back in the team coach to Liverpool. My mate Bavo phoned me to tell me my mum was really upset. He suggested I should give it a couple of hours before I phoned. I texted mum, telling her to call me whenever it suited her, and I wondered why she had taken the defeat so personally. When she called me, I went cold. Mum told me that after my own goal, the Liverpool supporters around her and Alex started abusing me viciously. That prick's done it on purpose, they shouted. He wants to play for Chelsea. He wants the money. Him and his fucking missus just want that London money. Gerard's a fucking traitor. I could deal with that, but it really hurts when Mum told me that a small group of men in Liverpool shirts and scarves, I wouldn't call them supporters, started chanting that Alex was a slut. She was a slag. She was a piece of shit. They had no idea that they were sitting so close to my wife and my mum. We recovered, and we hardened ourselves. Liverpool knocked Chelsea out of the Champions League in the Ghost Goal semi-final eight weeks later, but all those tangled memories were a reminder of how games between Liverpool and Chelsea could unleash dark and unsettling emotions. More bizarrely, the last time we played Chelsea at Anfield, on 21st of April 2013, Luis Suarez had sunk his fangs into Branislav Ivanovic. His ten-game ban had followed, with all the subsequent transfer speculation. Suarez's actions had seemed even worse on a day when, before kick-off, we had honoured the memory of Anne Williams, who had campaigned on behalf of all the Hillsborough families. Anne's son had also been one of the victims, and her courage and persistence in helping lead the fight against the cover-up was celebrated with a minute's applause. The touching sound of Anfield clapping in unison was also our tribute to the people who had died a week earlier during the bombing of the Boston Marathon. Our owners, Fenway, were based in Boston, and so emotions swirled around Anfield before the game. We should have been ecstatic after Louis' 95th-minute equaliser in a pulsating 2-2 draw, or pairing over his gorgeous first-time clip across goal that set up Daniel Sturridge for our opening goal. It would have even been acceptable if we'd been shaking our heads over a Zamball, which presented Chelsea with a needless penalty from a one matter corner. 
Louis's frustration at that mistake unleashed the demons in him. He went past boiling points when he bit Ivanovich. The outrage and long ban which followed were inevitable. Millions of people have made their mind up and judged them without knowing Louis as a man. It was different in Uruguay. Louis is forgiven an awful lot quicker at home than in any other countries. Louis probably can't get his head around the fact that he is judged differently in England than in Spain or Uruguay. I could only judge him as a friend and as a teammate. I knew he had many faults, but I found it difficult to criticise him as a young man and a star in the spotlight. People make mistakes. We all do. I've certainly made a few, although I've never bitten anyone. Louis knows that, in the heat of the moment, he can act terribly. His own wife, whom he loves more than anyone in the world, has criticised him for it. But how would you remove it entirely from someone with that fierce winner's mentality, the hunger and the warrior spirit? Louis is one of the best players in the world because of that ferocious attitude. It's very rare that a player with Louis's talent doesn't make some big emotional mistakes during his career. I'd seen it with Zidane and his World Cup final headbutt. I'd seen it with Rooney and his red card in the European Championship. I was capable of moments of madness too. They happen in a hot, blaring moment and you regret it for months or even years afterwards. I just loved having Louis in the same Liverpool side as me, and despite the strange reunion at Anfield with Ivanovic, I was very happy he would be lining up at home in a decisive match against Chelsea. There was one more twist too. Fernando Torres was on his way back to Anfield. He would be slaughtered by our fans. But I remembered Fernando fondly. How could I not when we played in so many great games together? Faith has its way with football. If you had dreamed up the script from a Liverpool perspective, it would have seemed impossible once Torres left. But it really did turn out that Torres made his Chelsea debut as a £50 million player on 6th of February 2011 at Stamford Bridge. Against Liverpool. Our away supporters raged against them all afternoon and Torres was unusually subdued. I wondered if he was haunted by a giant banner at the Liverpool end. He who betrays will always walk alone. Kenny Daglish, our canny old manager, who was just acting as caretaker then, following the sacking of Roy Hodgson, outwitted Mourinho. We won 1-0, the goal coming after a mix-up between Czech and Ivanovic allowed Raul Merielles to stab home my cross at the far post. Torres lasted just 66 minutes before he was replaced by Salomon Kalou. His Chelsea career never really recovered from that moment, and Liverpool's most bitterly passionate supporters regarded it as sweet justice for an act they saw as treachery. Suarez had only been on the bench that afternoon, having joined Liverpool twelve days earlier. Three years later, in April 2014, the contrast between Suarez's fortunes and the plight of Torres would be examined all over again at Anfield, even though I suspected that, this time, it would be Fernando who started the game on the bench. Mourinho had been raging all week. Chelsea were being made to play Liverpool just three days before the second leg of their Champions League semi-final. He had threatened to pick a weakened side in protest. I would have loved it if Chelsea played their reserves against us, but I suspected he'd play one of his strongest teams. I knew Mourinho would bring us a game. I was worried about how we were planning to play against Chelsea. I've never been able to say this in public before, but I was seriously concerned that we thought we could blow Chelsea away. I sensed an overconfidence in Brendan's team talks. He thought we could go out there and attack Chelsea, just as we had done against Manchester City and Norwich. We played into Mourinho's hands. 
I feared it then, and I know it now. We should have gone into the game with a much more compact formation. We should have made ourselves hard to beat and spoiled the game and been ugly, just like they were. Maybe we could have then got the draw, and even the win we wanted. As a player, I'm more like Mourinho in that I don't mind winning ugly. I've won some of the biggest medals in my career through smash and grab tactics. Sometimes we've not been the best team, but we've found a way to win. You need that mentality against a serial winner like Mourinho. We could blow away Arsenal and Everton because their defenders couldn't cope with our relentless pressure and tempo, but I felt we needed to approach a game against Chelsea very differently. A nil-nil Rafa-style draw would have worked for us. I didn't sleep well that night. I was convinced Mourinho would have something up his tactical sleeve to block and hurt us, and we were in for severe trouble if we tried to play the same open and attacking football that had got us to this point. But at the same time, it was not my place to knock on Brendan's door and discuss tactics with him. He would have been entitled, if I had done so, to tell me to piss off. The game weighed on my mind. Should I say something to Brendan? He would decide the tactics. I drove myself mad. My back was quiet, but my head was in turmoil. I kept it all to myself, tossing and turning, and hoping that everything would be fine on the day. On Hope Street, I felt moments of unsettling doubt. Anfield, Sunday 27th of April 2014 Mourinho surprised everyone. He picked a strong team, but, in one very unexpected decision, he kept Gary Cale on the bench and replaced him with Thomas Callas, a 20-year-old Czech defender who'd made just two first-team appearances all season, both as an 89th-minute substitute. Callas had joked on Twitter just two weeks earlier, I am a player for training sessions. If they need a cone, they put me there. A training ground cone of a kid would surely have no chance against Luis Suarez. In the absence of John Terry, Ivanovic had been moved across to play alongside Callas in a makeshift central defence. But my heart didn't soar. I knew Mourinho had his plan in place. He made five other changes to that side that had lost to Sunderland. Ashley Cole, Frank Lampard, John Obi mckell Andre Shearer and Denver Barr were all back. We played the same team that had beaten Norwich with Daniel Sturridge still recovering from his hamstring injury on the bench. It was another early Sunday afternoon kick-off, another spring day full of sunshine, another gut-wrenching ninety minutes of tension ahead. My least favourite referee, good old Martin Atkinson, was in charge. I might have guessed. Little guesswork was needed to understand Chelsea's strategy under Mourinho. It was obvious after a couple of minutes. At the end of that bitter afternoon, Brendan Rodgers for once allowed resentment to get in the way of his class and dignity. He said of Chelsea's defensive mindset, There were probably two buses parked today, instead of one. From the first minute they had ten men behind the ball. It was difficult because they virtually played right from the off with a back six. They had a back four, with two wingers back, and then the midfield three, in front of them. Just putting ten players right on your 18-yard box is not difficult to coach. We were the team that tried to win the game in a sporting manner. It would be a defensive masterclass, as disciplined as it was cynical, but Brendan was infuriated by Chelsea's time-wasting. So was I. As early as the sixth minute, Joe Flanagan and I were wrestling for the ball with Mourinho. We wanted a quick throw-in, but the old schemer wouldn't allow it. He held the ball behind his back before, as we tried to take it off him, he threw it away. A few more seconds had been eaten up on the clock. We already felt frustrated. Mourinho, grey and stubble-faced on the touchline, shrugged. 
He knew what he was doing. Chelsea had come to spoil our party. Before every goal kick, their keeper, Mark Schwarzer, would change sides in the box. And when he had the ball in his hands, he would hold on to it for four or five seconds longer than he needed to. Chelsea then tried to break the game up as much as possible, disrupting our rhythm at every opportunity. Our first few corners produced nothing, and then, in the eleventh minute, we forced another down our right wing. Suarez took it. I was lurking inside the box, hoping we would find one of our early goals to settle us. Callas tracked me, sticking close. I got ahead of him and nearly reached the ball, but it flashed past and Lucas deflected it towards the Chelsea goal. Cole cleared it off the line with a clumsy swipe. The ball squirted down the goal line towards the corner flag. Sacco gained possession and he looped it back into the area. Suarez met it with a volley which went straight to Sacco. It happened so quickly that Sacco blasted the shot high and over the bar. We would not get another clear chance all half as Chelsea smothered us. Some might call it anti-football but it was deadly effective and terribly hard to play against. We had none of our usual tempo and venom. Even Suarez looked off colour, his lone opportunity dipping harmlessly over the bar. The blue machine kept choking the life out of us. Kalas was playing like a composed veteran at the back. Ivanovic was rock solid next to him. Cole came closest for Chelsea in one of their rare attacks. While they also appealed loudly for a penalty when a shot from Mohamed Salah hit Flano's hand, it was never a penalty, but Chelsea protested. Atkinson added a few minutes of stoppage time as the first half dribbled away. We were also playing for the break. Flanagan found Allen, who passed the ball to Coutinho. The Brazilian moved across the halfway line. Every Liverpool player ahead of him was closely marked, and so Coutinho turned and played the ball back into our own half to Sacco. Three of us were in a line. Sacco, me, and Skirtle. The closest Chelsea players, Denver Bar. Mikel was some distance away. It was a nothing moment, an aimless stretch of play at the end of a drop-off. Sacco looked across to me. It seemed obvious that he was about to play it safe and square. Barr moved diagonally across the pitch towards me to close my options. Sacco used his left foot to slide his pass in my direction. It was nothing dramatic or risky, just another routine, run-of-the-mill, bog-standard, predictable cushion of a square pass. I would have received hundreds of thousands of such passes over me twenty-five years in Liverpool colours. It came towards me, sure and steady. I was already moving towards the ball, but I looked across to check on bar. I was still in clear space. There was no danger. I went to trap the ball, but it slid under me right foot. My concentration had been more on bar than the ball. I turned to correct myself, and then it happened. I slipped. I went down. I'd slipped often in my life. I'd slipped downstairs. I'd slipped on our kitchen floor. I've slipped on football pitches many, many times. But never as unlucky as this. Never in a way which has cost a goal. And three crucial points. Bar, seeing the ball still loose, sprinted into the centre circle. He had half a field of open space in front of him. I was scrambling on my hands and knees and I pushed myself back to my feet. I saw the blue blade of Barr flash past me. His right boot knocked the ball away from me. Barr had momentum now. His long legs powered him forward as I gave chase. It was not even a race. I was helpless. I knew I couldn't catch him, even though I tried. I ran as fast as I could, but Barr was far ahead. He needed just two more touches of the ball as Simon Mignolet came rushing out to narrow the angle. All I could say to myself was, Bail me out, Simon. 
bail me out. From just outside the eighteen-yard box, Barr coolly slid the ball between Mignolet's legs and into the empty net. I went blank. I kept running on automatic towards the vacant goal, feeling even emptier inside. Barr had turned away to celebrate, almost colliding with Skirtle as he ran. Inside the goal, I bent down to pick up the ball. My mind was in a daze. Barr was still alone. It was his turn to be on his hands and knees as he kissed the ground. I walked slowly up the pitch, the ball under my arm. My eyes were closed. I felt like I couldn't go on. The Chelsea players had reached bar, burying him in a blue avalanche. I gave the ball away and kept trudging towards the halfway line. I brought a hand up to my head in anguish. Chelsea had scored. After my slip, in time I'd had done for their earlier time wasting. I felt sick. The half-time whistle sounded soon afterwards. I could hear the cops singing one of my songs in solidarity. Stevie Gerrard is our captain. Stevie Gerrard is a red. Stevie Gerrard plays for Liverpool. A scouser born and bred. I still felt hollow and burned out. In the dressing room, I was a wreck. I sat on the wooden bench in my usual space in the corner, unable to say a word. I caught sight of my reflection in the mirror opposite my seat. I looked ashen and shell-shocked. The manager came in a couple of minutes later. OK, it's happened, he said. We're 1-0 down, but there's still time. We're not playing too well, but we need to relax. We need to stay calm. We're trying too hard. Brendan was right. I had been straining the whole half to make something happen. So had Louis. Chelsea just kept blunting us. And then I'd slipped. The dressing room was hushed. Look, Brendan said, imploring all the other players. If anyone deserves to be bailed out, it's him. His finger pointed at me. Your captain needs you all to pay him back. The amount of times he's pulled this club out of a mess and changed impossible situations and got players out of trouble of the stuff of legend. Now it's time you repay him. You've got forty-five minutes to do it. Brendan looked at me. Stevie, forget it, he said. It happens. Let's all go out and win this game. We can do it. I was still dazed, and I didn't feel confident. It was such a scrappy game, and it was so difficult to break down. I wasn't sure we had the belief to produce any more of the magic that had lit up our season over and over again. We all tried hard. Sterling steamed towards goal, and just inside the Chelsea area, Callas blocked him. Sterling went down. I was hoping for a penalty. Anfield was screaming for a penalty. Martin Atkinson shook his head. The crowd had been quiet early in the second half, but they worked to lift us. They built up some noise. It was not the usual Anfield roar, but they were trying to drive us on. I ran in to meet a corner, but couldn't connect. The ball slid off Sterling's head to Johnson. His cross was cleared, but it fell to Joe Allen inside the D. His shot was well struck, but Schwartz saved it, diving to his left. Mignolet soon matched him, producing a fine save also at full stretch to his left to keep out Shirley. I was running forward too much, trying shots from impossible angles, just wanting to make up for the slip. The holding role was not a position suited to heroics. I might have been able to make up for it as a number ten, but I was flailing away now. I was desperate to atone for my error. Four minutes were left. Another simple pass came my way from Sterling. I collected it easily and passed it to Coutinho. We were trying to stay patient and rescue ourselves. 
Coutinho and Johnson swapped passes before it was played back inside to me. I found Sterling wide on the left. He slid it to Suarez, who dinked it back to me. I surged into the box, but my cross sailed over the goal line. Atkinson got it wrong. He gave us a corner. He owed me one. I took it short, passing it to Sterling, whose dip and effort was punched away by Schwarzer. It rebounded to Suarez, who hit his best shot of the afternoon. Schwarzer turned it over for one last corner. Aspas, on as a sub, took a terrible corner. He passed it straight to Willian, the same Willian I had texted at the start of the season trying to persuade him to sign for Liverpool, scampered away. Coutinho had to launch himself into a desperate tackle. The ball ping-ponged back and forth before Nemanja Matic intercepted it and it fell to Willian again. We were totally exposed. Flanagan was the last red shirt left as Willian and Torres ran at him. Willian clipped it past Flanagan. Torres was away. Willian close behind them. They ran half the length of the field and not a single player in red near them. It was all over. Torres took the ball into our area, and, as Mignolet dived at his feet, my old teammate slipped the ball to Willian, who could walk it into the goal. 2-0 Mourinho jumped into the air. He then raced down the touchline, beating his chest. He stopped running, but kept hammering the Chelsea badge. He was shouting, Yeah! All the time. I looked away. The cop burst into fiery song. War con. War con. I felt that all our hopes had been crushed. At the end I walked over to Martin Atkinson. I stretched out my hand. I shook the hands of all the Chelsea players. Anfield was singing my name again. I hung my head low. I didn't deserve it. Our eleven-match winning streak had come to a shuddering halt, crashing into a big blue bus. We had been unbeaten all year, since our loss on 28th of December 2013, 16 games earlier, against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea had beaten us again, at Anfield, just when we needed the win most. We were still top, but the destiny of the league title was no longer in our own hands. Manchester City were in control. If they won their remaining three games, they would be champions again. We would be second and second was nowhere. I kept walking towards the tunnel. You'll never walk alone, rang around Anfield. I just wanted to be swallowed up by the ground. I wanted to disappear down a dark hole. An hour later, I was in the back of the car with the tears rolling down my face. Despite me old mate Paul McGratton's encouraging, there's still a few games to go. I knew Manchester City would not blow it. There would be no comeback this time. I had wanted to win the league with Liverpool for so long that, now it had gone forever, I could not help myself. The tears kept rolling. Eventually, I spoke to Alex. I didn't want the girls to see me in this state. I needed to find somewhere where we could be alone, somewhere empty and away from Liverpool. Where? Alex asked. I don't know, I said. Speak to Strong. I heard Alex talking to Strong Marshall. My agent of many years. I wiped my tears, and the days settled over me. The car picked up speed, and Liverpool raced past in a blur. Alex's phone kept ringing. Strong's PA was trying to arrange a flight. Michael Owen knew someone who had a private plane. They would help me out. We just needed to decide where in the world I would go when I was in such a mess.
Suddenly, a name arose in my messed up head. I'd been there once. The only thing I remembered about the place was how empty it seemed. Maybe Monaco? I shrugged. Monaco felt like a ghost town, and it felt like it was in a nightmare for most of the 48 hours we were hidden away there. I wasn't suicidal. I knew I had Alex and the girls to keep me going. They were the most important people in my life, alongside my mum and dad. I had my family, but I can imagine that people who are suicidal would feel pretty similar to how I felt then. I was that low, and the worst thing I could do was to have faced it alone. I needed Alex next to me. We also asked Gratty to fly over with us. I needed my wife most of all at my side, and one of my closest mates. That's the type of person I am. I don't know if I could have handled it alone. I just don't know because I'd never felt lower. My phone was switched off. From time to time I would check it. There were many messages. People were thinking of me. Steve Peters, the psychiatrist who had pulled me out of my bleakest spell before this utter nightmare, had texted a few hours after the game, saying I should call him. I couldn't phone Steve then because I couldn't speak. I had no words. I had to take a sleeping pill that night. It was the only way I could stop myself thinking about the slip and the defeat. When I woke the next morning, I was still locked in a bad dream, but I knew it was real. I knew I had to keep going. I would be numb for days, but eventually I had to be strong again. Somehow, I managed to call Steve that afternoon. If anyone could help me, I knew it would be him. Steve sensibly started by stepping back and putting everything into context. I knew by then that Man City had beaten Crystal Palace 2-0 away in Sunday's late kick-off. There were just three points behind us with a game in hand, and a much better goal difference. But Steve insisted it was not over. He encouraged me just to allow the rest of the season to take its course. We then moved to the heart of my despair. Steve helped me find some kind of context for the slip. He knew that when I made a mistake on a football pitch, or have a bad game, I'd always been honest and open and admitted it. I've done that since day one so he allowed me to take full responsibility for the slip and accept that it had a big impact on the game. But Steve helped me ask a serious question. If the worst happened in a football sense and we didn't win the league, would my slip be the only reason for our disappointment? I had to admit the truth. Probably not. We had lost games that I didn't play in. Other players had made mistakes, sometimes more than one. There had also been months when I'd scored late goals. The penalties against Fulham and West Ham were just a few weeks old, and had won us all three points. Maybe, Steve suggested, Liverpool would not have even been top of the league if I hadn't played so well all season. It didn't stop me tormenting myself, but Steve did help. He reminded me that, even as footballers, we have a logical human side, but, like everyone else, we also have a chimp in our head who unleashes all our negative emotions. The chimp chatters away in our lowest moments, and asks, But what if you hadn't done that? What if you hadn't slipped? Why couldn't you have been more careful? It's all your fault, isn't it? My chimp made me cry in the car, and my chimp made me feel life was hardly worth living. As Steve told me again, the chimp feeds on negative emotions, and he did to listen to me human self again. I thanked Steve, and said I'd speak to him again once I got back home. In the deadness of Monaco, with darkness falling on that hushed Monday evening, the night after the terrible day before, I allowed myself to reflect more deeply. I didn't just obsess over me slip. 
my mind opened up and I saw my whole career unfold in front of me. I remembered the goals against Olympiakos and AC Milan. I remembered the miracle of Istanbul. I had played my part. But we had also got lucky that night. Milan were a better side than us. But I scored the goal that sparked the comeback from 3-0. I lifted that huge Champions League trophy that night. The greatest moment of my career. Yes, I had slipped against Chelsea. Yes, I might never win the league. But I had been the king of European football for one night. I always had Istanbul. Fate and luck had sometimes shone down on my skill and hard work. I had scored a screamer of a goal against West Ham when Liverpool looked dead and buried in the 2006 FA Cup final. It had been perhaps my finest ever game for Liverpool. They call it the Stephen Gerrard final these days. Who else apart from Stanley Matthews gets a final named after him? How lucky was I? I remembered all the derbies, me trick two years before against Everton in March 2012. That was the night Luis Suarez and I felt unstoppable. How lucky had I been to play alongside Suarez, and Torres, and Alonso, and Rooney. How lucky was I to be going all the way from Ironside Road in tough old Heighton to Brazil and that summer's World Cup. The dark and the light, the elation and the misery belonged together. Yes, I felt terrible, but at least I knew what glory meant. Most people aren't that lucky. Most people shuttle between more muted experiences their whole lives. Most people aren't as lucky as I've been, and needed to be thankful, and not just tearful. The past season had been full of despair and joy. I remembered the standoff between Louis and Liverpool, and my role in resolving it. I remembered the four Suarez goals against Norwich when the cup had sung so deliriously. I just can't get enough. I remembered my goal for England against Poland at Wembley, sealing our World Cup place in Brazil. I remembered the 5-1 win against Arsenal, the 4-0 derby against Everton, the 3-0 thumping of Manchester United. I remembered all the victorious journeys home from London, feeling knackered but alive with hope. I remembered racing through the dark from Fulham, after taking off my shirt and going crazy because I'd scored the winner and I feel so alive, boomed out of the team bus. I remembered the 25th anniversary service for all those who had died at Hillsborough. I remembered the moment when Jerry Marsden and the cop had begun to sing gently, tenderly, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high, and don't be afraid of the dark. But I still remembered the slip more than anything. And so, even though I helped get myself back on track, I stayed in the hotel room with Alex most of the time. We went for a walk once, and we sat by the pool for an hour. The second night we went for dinner in an empty restaurant, but I had no appetite. I was still numb. At least I understood the context of everything. I'm not begetted. I'm the other way, in fact. I'm probably too harsh and self-critical, but I'm also clever enough to break it down and analyse it and come out with the right answers. In Monaco... As we prepared to go back to Liverpool, I realised the simple fact all over again. I had done my best. That certainly would help me heal. I thought it might take years, but eventually, with the help of Alex, the girls, my parents, my friends and my family, I knew I would get over my mistake against Chelsea. Chris Morgan sent me one of the first texts I received when I got back to Liverpool on a Tuesday. 
Chelsea were playing Atletico Madrid the following evening, Wednesday 30th of April, in the Champions League semi-final second leg. Chris had been in touch with me when I was in Monaco, just checking I was okay, and he sent a simple text once Alex and I were back home with the kids. Do you want to watch the game tomorrow and have a bag of Haribos? Chris clearly thought the Haribos might sweeten the bitter taste of watching Chelsea. Okay. It'll be quite good to watch them get beat. You can come around to ours if you want, because I haven't seen my kids much lately. My friendship with Chris was based on our professional relationship. We saw each other at work, at Melwood and Anfield, and while travelling to away games. We didn't usually visit each other's homes, but these were difficult days, and I valued the support of a trusted colleague. Chris arrived early, with the Harry Bows, which the girls enjoyed. He and I then sat down to watch the game. Torres was up against his boyhood club. Mourinho had picked him to start, and, of course, Fernando scored. I was happy for Fernando, but I was supporting Atletico. Chelsea had caused us so much pain I thought we'd enjoy seeing them suffer a little. Atletico hurt them, again and again. They were stunningly good on the counter-attack. Adrian equalised just before half-time, and then, after an hour, Diego Costa, who would be a Chelsea player a month later, put Atletico 2-1 up. Chelsea had to score two now to survive. We were quite enjoying ourselves, and polished off a few of the Haribos the girls had left us. Chris was able to ask how I was really doing, on the inside. I pulled a face. I was better, but I was still struggling. You know what it was? Chris said at the slip. It was just a stud, a bit of grass, a slippery pitch. You can't take the responsibility for that. Barr still had to run from the halfway line. He had to outrun two other players. He had to put it past Mignolet. You were on the halfway line, Stevie. It's not happened in the six-yard box. Yeah, I know, I said. But still. We brightened again. Arda Choran scored. Chelsea won. Atletico three. Bye-bye, Chelsea. I felt better when I was back at Melwood. We were playing Crystal Palace away on the Monday night and Man City had to go to Everton. City had a terrible record at Goodison. Maybe, just maybe, Everton could do us a huge favour. We were training hard again, and the lads were all great with me. I think they knew I was still in a bit of shock, but I was getting ready to perform well at Crystal Palace. No one spoke to me about Chelsea, or the slip, but I could tell how hard they all tried in the second half. I knew they'd tried extra hard to straighten out the result for my sake, because of Brendan's words at half-time, and I had been touched. You find out who your mates are in such situations, and they were all great with me. A lot of them really did have extra motivation in wanting to help me win that title after all my years with the club, but I'd wanted it for them too. We were still in the race together. We were open again for a miracle. City were playing Everton in the early evening kick-off on the Saturday. I couldn't bear to watch the game, but I was following the score on my phone. After eleven minutes, it was one-nil to Everton. Ross Barkley. Hello. Could this really happen? My happiness lasted another eleven minutes and a Guero goal for City. A draw would be okay. A draw would be just fine. A draw would mean that the title was back in our hands. Two minutes before half-time, there was another goal alert. I looked down. Dzeko. Everton won. City two. Everton needed to win to keep alive their faint hopes of Champions League qualification, but early in the second half, Dzeko made it 3-1. Lukaku scored another for Everton, but City marched on. They were top of the league, ahead of us on goal difference. We each had two games to play. Cities both at home against Aston Villa and West Ham.
Two sides with nothing to play for and already thinking of the summer holidays. It felt like our last hope had gone. We were 3-0 up against Crystal Palace with just 11 minutes left. The old chant of, we're gonna win the league, we're gonna win the league, had resurfaced alongside a simpler message from the Liverpool faithful, attack, attack, attack. Our goal difference was 53, City's was 59. We were still a long way away but we'd given it a real goal. The first goal had come after 18 minutes. I took a corner and Joe Allen, hardly a giant, headed it home at the far post. Then, early in the second half, I hit a 40-yard crossfield special. It landed at Daniel Sturridge's feet. He controlled it well, cut inside and shot at goal. His strike took a deflection past the Palace keeper for an own goal. Sterling and Suarez combined in the 55th minute. Suarez scored a lovely goal. He picked up the ball and raced back to the halfway line. We were in the mood for more. The game gave us three more, all to Palace in a dizzying, sickening nine-minute spell. A deflected shot started the collapse and then, two minutes later, Skirtle was on the left wing threading a pass into the Palace area. It was cleared away and Palace broke at speed. Skirtle was out of position in central defence and Yannick Balassi's seer and run set up to Gale. We were unbalanced as a team. Glenn Murray then split us wide open again and Gale hammered it past Mignolet. 3-3. At the final whistle, I sank down onto me haunches. Luis Suarez, who was crying helplessly, pulled his white shirt over his face. The television cameras and the photographers crowded round me and Louis to capture our latest anguish. I pushed them away. I walked over to the Palace players, shook their hands, and then went to find Louis. I tried to console him, and then Colo Torre, a substitute that night, stepped in to help. I'm here, big man, Colo said. He always called me Big Man. Colo led Louis off the field. We trudged behind, leaving the joyous Palace fans to their party. Liverpool had arranged for us to fly back from London on a private plane. The whole squad was muted. Most of the players were on their iPads, listening to music or watching movies. I sat next to Chris and Glenn Driscoll. We chatted quietly because we could still not quite get our heads around one of the strangest nights of my career. We were murdering them. I said in disbelief to Chris and Glenn. I honestly thought we were going to win 6-0. I shrugged. It probably still wouldn't have made any difference. It had been my worst eight days in football. Chelsea, Monaco and Palace. The best dream I'd ever had, winning the league with Liverpool, had just died. I felt horrific. I looked out of the window. There was nothing to see. The plane did a little lurch as we hit a patch of turbulence. Some of the lads glanced up. I turned to Chris. Mate, I said, all I need now is for this plane to drop out of the sky. Chris looked at me. If it goes down, I said, I'm not going into the brace position. I meant it. I was ready to surrender. If we were going down, well, sorry. I'd had enough. The plane steadied and everyone picked up their iPads again. I was quiet for the rest of the flight lost in thought as we flew into the black night.